Again, it is so good to be with you on this New Year's Day, and such a privilege, I think, to come together and start the year off right, together in worship and in the Word. So I encourage you, I exhort you, take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me as we start this new year to the book of Haggai, chapter 2. Haggai is right between Zephaniah and Zechariah. You can call it Haggai or Haggai if you wish, but just not Haggai, please. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, with your word in our hands and on our laps, we pray that you would speak to us. We are eager to come before you at the start of this new year to worship you, to found our lives upon the truth, and to ground ourselves in what is right. We come hungry and expectant, and we ask, Lord, that you would feed us from your word. Give us the food we need, the strength to carry on, the um, growth and encouragement in Christ that you are working within your church for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we returned to the book of Haggai a couple weeks ago, well, I can't remember how long ago, it was a while ago when we were in Haggai chapter 1, um, we're coming now to Haggai chapter 2, which is picking up uh, the story of the Israelites right where we left them. So just by a brief way of reminder, I'll remind you where they are. They are um, returned from exile. They are um, come back from the lands where God sent them and God has charged them to build a house. They began the construction on the house, but they stopped because of opposition, and God sent Haggai and Zechariah to prophesy to the people to encourage them to continue in the work. So we saw last time that the Lord sent Haggai to prophesy on the first day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king, and God confronted the people for their lack of obedience, and he charged them to build the house, which he stirred up their hearts to obey, and they did 23 days later. Which brings us to our passage, chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. 
Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. My desire in selecting this text for us this morning is to strengthen us as we also look ahead at the work that God has prepared for us in the new year. As we saw in Haggai chapter 1, God's people, Israel, are clearly called to build God's house. There's difficulties, there's oppositions, and God confronts them and encourages them and stirs up their hearts to obey. And a month later, the construction begins. But we come now to chapter 2, which is about a month later after this construction has started. And we see that the people are already discouraged. For us, this season of discouragement usually comes in February, maybe March, when you get tired of reading in Exodus or Leviticus in your Bible reading plans after your New Year's resolutions. Um, but for the people of Israel, it comes a month later when they are now facing discouragements in the work that they've been doing for the last month in the construction of the temple. We are not called to build God's literal house in the same way that the Israelites were, but we are called to busy ourselves about God's work. The reality for us is that we too can become easily discouraged and overcome in the work that God has given us to do. And that discouragement can lead us into apathy and inactivity. The message for us today is that God is with us. Even though we face discouragement in the work of obedience that God has set before us, God calls us to courage and confidence in the light of his presence and power. So as we look at these verses of chapter 2, we'll see, here's three points for you, that God comforts us in our discouragement, verses 1 through 3. We'll see that God calls us to work with courage, verses 4 and 5, and we'll see that God calls us to work with confidence, verses 6 through 9. First, God calls us to, God comforts us in our discouragement. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing before your eyes? First, this timestamp in verse 1 tells us when this oracle or burden or word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. It came on the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, about a month after um, we left off um, the people of Israel when they started the construction of the temple. This time frame also helps us understand a little bit of why the people were discouraged. If you remember, uh, the people are not in an easy time right now. They are facing economic recession. Their crops have failed to produce a full harvest. 
because of their disobedience and the covenant curses of Deuteronomy 30. Um, they um, have sowed much and reaped little. They've put their money in a bag with holes in it. They are struggling to get by because they don't have a lot, and this is discouraging. There's also political instability in the land as there's these Samaritans that have been imported and they're opposing the people of Israel and writing back to the kings of Persia to get the work to stop and they succeed. Um, and so the work stops for a time, but there's also upheaval in the kingdom. Egypt is rebelling, Persian armies are marching, and it's just not a safe or solid or um, considerable time for them to really feel at ease or confident. These are some of the factors we looked at last time, and it's what caused the people to busy themselves with their own houses instead of focusing on the Lord's house. And I think in such times we would understand. But the people's discouragement is also caused by the last month that they have spent in the construction of the temple. This month just happens to be a really busy month for the people of Israel. It is a month full of feasts and celebrations for them, the seventh month of the year. On the first of the seventh month was the Feast of Trumpets, and they would celebrate this in the temple or on the temple site with sacrifices. Um, then on the 10th day of the month was the Day of Atonement, which was a big day for the um, Jewish nation. They also would make sacrifices on the temple site. And now, as we're in the 15th of the month to the 21st of the month, and this day comes on the 21st of the month, the 15th to the 21st of the month was the Feast of Booths which you remember is when Israelites would make tents or structures on top of their houses and they would live in these structures, reminding them of how the Lord brought them out of the land of Egypt. The last day of this feast, the last day of the Feast of Booze, was also a special feast called the Feast of Ingathering. And this feast celebrates the end of the harvest and it was one of three annual chances for the people to tithe to the Lord. So all of this feasting and all of this sacrificing in not much of a temple site, it'd be like a slab of the foundation, and with not much resources to give or to tithe, I think would remind the people of their lack of resources and their needy times, which again is discouraging. Those are all present reasons for this discouragement, what they're dealing with right now, but these things also remind them of the past, and the past weighs heavy on our hearts. It gives them past reasons for discouragement. First of all, they're living in tents. They've been living in tents this last week, as that was supposed to remind them of how God brought Israel out of the wilderness. Leviticus 23, 42 says, You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths, when I brought them out from the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. Ezra tells us that the people are starting to reobserve the law and reobserve the sacrifices, and so they would have been dwelling in booths. And they would remember how they left their nice houses in Egypt to come to a wilderness that was very difficult to live in kind of very similar to how these exiles have left their houses in Persia to come to a land that comparatively was barren and fruitless. 
And for some reason, they just don't feel like they really have the promised land back to them yet. They would feel that perhaps God is not with them. This seventh month, on top of these uh, remembrances to uh, God bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt, the seventh month is also the anniversary of Solomon dedicating the temple. If you remember when Solomon dedicates the temple, there's all of this fanfare, there's these trumpets, there's these priests, there's these sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord fills the temple, and it's this magnificent picture of God is with us in our midst. The glory of the Lord is the strength of the nation of Israel. And they could not help but compare their meager workforce to the thousands of servants and builders that Solomon would have had, to compare their shabby building project to the magnificent grand work that Solomon made with imported cedar from Lebanon. And they would remember that the ark of the Lord entered the temple and the glory of the Lord filled it. And what they have right now is a week full of living in tents, conducting sacrifices on the site of this slab of of foundation of the temple um, without any fanfare and without the visible presence of the glory of the Lord. This work pales in comparison to the past. So some other helpful background information. In verse 2, um, we have this address that is given again to these same people as it was addressed to in chapter 1, to Zerubbabel, the grandson of Jehoiakim. He is the rightful heir to David's throne, and yet he's made a governor, subjected to the kingdom of Persia, governor of the province of Judah. We have Joshua the high priest. He is of Aaron's line, but I don't know if he feels very priestly given the many sacrifices he's done without much of a temple. Um, and we have the people here who are looking back at the past. Verse 3, God comes to the people and he sends Haggai the prophet to bring the following questions, which is part of the style of Haggai's book, his prophecy. The word of the Lord comes to Haggai and he brings to the people a question. Last time the question was, is this the time for you to dwell in paneled houses while the house of the Lord lies in ruins? No, it is not. This time, God comes to them with a question that again cuts to the heart of the issue of exactly what they're struggling with and exactly what they're thinking, even though it may not have been voiced. The word of the Lord comes by the hand of Haggai the prophet, and he says, speak to the people. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory. How do you see it now? And is it not as nothing in your eyes? These three questions slowly and systematically give a devastating blow to any optimists who would be among the ranks of the people of Israel. I tend to be an optimist, and so when I read these questions, I tend to come up with my own rhetorical answers that maybe are influenced by my optimism, but bear with me, God gives the people these questions. He says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Well, optimistically, not many. But there would be a few who would have seen the Temple of Solomon before it was destroyed, and they would be in their 70s. 
So any of the people of Israel who were in exile and who came back would be in their 70s. They possibly would have seen the temple when they were children, um, when it was destroyed 67 years ago. Um, they would have had been strong enough to make the journey back, um, but possibly a few of them saw this temple in its former glory. Second question, how do you see it now? It may not be outrightly obvious that they're comparing it, but now God brings this question that forces them to compare the past with the present. Optimistically, there's progress. It's difficult with meager resources and the opposition from the Samaritans, but God has stirred our hearts and we have started the rebuilding, that the work is happening. There's progress being made and then the last blow. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And here the optimist just has to concede and be, yeah. Yeah, this is the truth that I've been hiding in my heart this whole time. This is nothing compared to the past. Maybe we've been telling ourselves these, these uh, facades or these statements to get our hopes up or to keep hope. We've been trying to cling on to hope, but the, the desperate truth that has been clawing at our hearts on the inside is that we are nothing compared to the past. This work is nothing compared to the past, and it's true. This is just not the good old days. A couple observations about this discouragement. We do this too, don't we? We compare ourselves to the past and we become discouraged really easily by the differences that we see from the past, perhaps the good old glory days, whatever the glory days looked like for you, and the present. Um, and What's interesting to me is that God does not confront the people in this discouragement. He does not call them out for being in sin because they are discouraged. What he does is he lovingly comes to them with this question and he confronts them right where they're at. If you remember, we saw that last time in Haggai 1 as well, where God comes to them lovingly asking a question. He says, consider your ways. Is this the right thing for you to do? And now, even in the midst of this devastating discouragement, a devastating discouragement that God helped them to process and to get to for any stubborn optimists in their midst. Now, at the rock bottom, God comforts them. He doesn't confront them. He doesn't condemn them. He brings it up to their minds so that he can offer them comfort, just like he approaches Cain in his sin or Jonah or like parents go to approach their children, asking them if this is the right thing to do. God approaches them. And I think we need to remember that God doesn't always do things in the same way. If we get caught up longing for the glory of the past, we can shut out any kind of observation of how God is working in the present. You know, people these days, people are just crazy, and it's just not like the good old days when we used to do ministry well. So why bother is the thought process that we might go through. Our, our discouragement in the work of ministry is not necessarily sinful, but it's where we let us take it, take us, isn't it? We can let this discouragement take us to dark places that ultimately lead to our apathy, our inactivity, and our disobedience. But the comfort is, in our discouragement, God is there. He helps you process it, 
and he gives you comfort to carry on. Which brings us to the second point. God calls us to work with courage. Verses 4 and 5. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. And I lost my place. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So we see God address the people. Um, He calls them to work with courage, but he does so by giving them three commands. Um, And the first of these commands, be strong, is actually repeated three times. It's repeated to each of the addressees of this word, this burden, this oracle. Uh, He says to be strong, be strong, be strong. And the central command, the one in the middle, is work. Work, for I am with you. That is the point of the sermon. We can all go home now. Um, But he says, work, for I am with you. And um, he says, my, my spirit is in your midst. Fear not. We have um, a, a positive command to work because I am with you. And going off of that, hinging off of that, because I am in your midst, do not fear. So do work, do not fear, hinging on the fact that God is with us. His spirit is in our midst. This should be our motivation as Christians. Our strength, our joy, is that we are the people who have relationship with our God. He is our God, and we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We dwell with him, and he dwells with us. Emmanuel is more than just Christmas time. It is the Christian life. God says, I am with you, just according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. This covenant that God refers to is the covenant that he made with Moses and with the people of Israel in Exodus 32 through 34 when Moses is really discouraged and he doesn't know how to carry on with this stiff-necked people. And he says, God, I don't want to go up unless you go with me. And God says, I will go with you. And then God gives them the covenant of the law of the stipulations and the requirements that are to be kept for God having relationship with his people. How is this going to work for I will be your God and you will be my people? Well, here is the law. God provides the means um, necessary to have this covenant so that this God, this holy God who cannot look in the face of sin um, will dwell in the midst of this people. It's a uh, balanced relationship. It's a relationship that is often on edge when the people sin and Um, there is uh, death or plagues that break out among the people. The wrath of God goes out, and um, there's the need for sacrifice and for repentance. But it is a relationship between man and holy God that God himself provides. For us as Christians, we have a, a new covenant and a better covenant that God has given us that more than just the blood of bulls and goats We have the blood of Jesus who makes for us a way into the presence of God so that we have a holy God who dwells with us because of the blood of Jesus that was spilt on our behalf.
So God says to them, he also says to us, my spirit is in your midst. I am with you because of the covenant that I made. God lovingly comforts us in our discouragement, but we still need to act in obedience in the work that God has given us to do. The Israelites were called to build God's house. We are not. We don't have a temple anymore precisely because of Jesus. Jesus was the fulfillment of the temple. He satisfies the wrath of God, and in him, the glory of God dwells bodily. Um, But building Jesus' house looks like his charge to Peter. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs. His commission to the church is to make disciples of all nations. 1 Peter 2, we are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house, as it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Being about the work of the church in ministry to our community and to the nations can be arduous and discouraging. But God is with us. He is in our midst, and he calls us to work with courage. Lastly, God calls us to work with confidence. Six through nine. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Coming off of that last command, fear not, Uh, Work for I am with you. Uh, My spirit is in your midst. Fear not. We now have an additional reason why we should not fear and why, in fact, we should have confidence in doing God's work. We have a summary of God's actions that ground us with reasons for our faith, for our confidence. First of all, God says, in a little while. Sometimes God's in a little while can be a little bit different from our in a little while. But we know that when God promises to act, he will act. Even if we can't see it in our timeline, maybe even in our lifetime, God will act. And we have this as our hope that unifies all of us as we look to our future in Christ. We know that what God has started, he will complete in us. He will bring us safely home in a little while. Secondly, he says, I will shake. I will shake the heavens and the earth. This picture of the, the universe, the, the planets, the stars, the heavens and the earth, and then on the earth, the sea and the dry land, all of it is to be shaken by the might and the power of God. I think a Hebrew reader would read these words, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and immediately think of Mount Sinai when God in his presence came down upon the mountain, clothed the mountain with fire and smoke, and he said, do not come on the mountain, for it is holy. You will die if you do. And the earth shook. It trembled at the presence of God. We have God's power on display that's now in their memories, and God says, 
I am able to do this again. I will do this again. Yet in a little while, I will shake things up. I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, even the nations, the treasures of the nations. I will shake them so that all of these treasures shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory. This part of the prophecy gets a little bit difficult, as much of Old Testament prophecies are. There's some dual layers here. There's the shaking of the nations, I think, that took place in preparation for Jesus' time of birth in the several hundred years of history that happened in between now and the time of Jesus. And there's also the fulfillments of God shaking the nations and bringing peace that I think will come at the end times eschatologically as we still look forward to our hope in a little while. Um, there's the statue of Daniel 2 that kind of outlines for Daniel, hey, these are the nations and these are how it's going to break down. Um, in Ezra 6, we see Darius, king of Persia, he commissions Persian resources um, to build the temple. So there's this foreign money that is given um, to uh, these people to build the house. There's also a Greek influence. As, as we know, Persia is conquered by Greece. Alexander the Great goes everywhere, spreads his influence, and there's now Greek culture, Greek resources. The Romans come in, and they spread their peace, their Pax Romana, with their currency and their roads. The point is God is in this process of history shaking the nations, bringing in this foreign wealth, because all of it belongs to him. All of the nations, all of these great kings of history they are in the hand of the Lord, and he directs them where he will. And he is shaking these great houses, bringing these foreign treasures in to build his house in Jerusalem and to give peace. And I think as a Christian on this side of the cross, I can only look at that and see how all of that is fulfilled in Jesus. How because of the temple that stood in Jesus' time, we have peace because now Jesus is our temple. He fulfilled the temple, and now we no longer need it. God said, I will fill this house with glory, and the later glory of this house will be greater than the former. Um, Herod's temple that Herod rebuilt was beautiful with lots of gold and big Roman eagle on it. Um, I, I'm not sure if it really compared to the temple of Solomon. The point is, this now temple had the presence of Jesus in it. As we read a couple of weeks ago at our Christmas Eve service, we had people in the temple waiting to see the revealed Messiah of the Lord. And Simon says, now I can die in peace because I have seen the Lord's Christ. Now this glory of the Lord has indeed come into the temple and it is greater than the temple ever was. Verse 8, God says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. All of this belongs to the Lord. As Jesus gave peace through his death on the cross and his resurrection, he also will come and give us peace as he comes to judge the nations, to shake them, and to bring in wealth and glory to his kingdom as his people are brought together, as the hope that we look forward to as God reigns and there is true peace forever. So a little bit of some dual layers there, um, but either way, we have hope. We have great reason for hope that God is working and that he is working for his glory. Hebrews 12, 26 says, 
Actually, this is the author of Hebrews' commentary on this passage yet in a little while. Hebrews 12, 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And the author of Hebrews says this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The point of God telling us these actions about who he is, about what he's doing, about how he's shaking, how he's establishing, how he's giving peace, it's to give us great confidence that we know how the story ends, we know that God is with us. He's on our side. And he is giving us these things to inspire us. It is obviously his work. He is doing it. And he will accomplish the work that he sets out to do, whether you like it or not. Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Paul echoes this confidence when he says in Philippians 1 verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God cares about us lovingly enough to come to us in the midst of our discouragement and to give us reason for courage and confidence with the assurance of his presence. He gives us reason because we know that his work will not fail. We trust in God and we can hold his hand as he walks with us, but he still asks us to reach up to the plow and put our hand on it and to work. I think of my children. You know, sometimes when you're in the grocery store and you are with children, um, they want to help, right? Sometimes our children are less of a help than they are of a help, but we still let them help us. Um, and sometimes when you're with your children and you're in the grocery store and they want to steer the cart, you know that's a bad idea, right? Um, but you let them. And so the little children reaches up his hand or her hand, and they put a hand on the cart. And they're so excited because they're working, they have a job to do, they're steering the cart. And you know that Daddy the Father has his hand on the cart too. And I'm really steering the cart, but they're with me, and they're working, and they're helping, and I'm asking them to help me steer the cart, to teach them, and to love them, to help them grow and learn. God calls us to work. And just like children with a hand on the cart, God calls us to place our hands upon the plow of ministry labor and to join him in what he's doing. He doesn't need us per se. He is able to do it. His work will come to completion because of his hand, his power, and for his glory. But he waits for you to place your hand upon the plow to get work done. As we conclude our time in Haggai, 
there's a couple applicational things we need to consider. I have just five points for you. I'll go briefly. First, we need to work. Ephesians 2.10. God has made us as his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. God has prepared these works beforehand so that we should walk in them. To be a Christian redeemed by the Lord and bought by his blood and to be stagnant, inactive, not working is to forsake the reason why God has called us to his glorious grace. Titus 2.14, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ has given himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You are not redeemed from lawlessness and purified for his own possession to be simply a trinket or an, uh, something on display or something that doesn't do anything. You are a people for his possession who are zealous for good works. And it, it moves me to ask the question, dear Christian, are you working? Are you purposely, systematically producing spiritual good in your life or in the lives of others? Or perhaps have you become discouraged in these tasks and relegated the work, along with your past New Year's resolutions that have failed, to the earlier seasons of your life and you now find yourself quite comfortable just to survive and get by day to day? We need to work. Secondly, we are called to build God's house. God has clearly called every Christian to make disciples of all nations. One of the reasons he has called you, redeemed you, and died for you is so that you would be a light bulb, proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus says, if the salt has lost its taste, it's not good for anything anymore. It's not doing the job it's supposed to do. We need to build God's house. This is what God has called us to do. Number three, this work is hard. And we need to know that it's hard. It's arduous. It will bring disappointment, discouragement, even despair. Second Corinthians 1, we see Paul in the work of his ministry, faced with the oppositions and persecutions that he faced, came to a place where he despaired even of life itself. But, he says, God is the Father of all mercies and the God of comfort. Despite the guaranteed discouragements that we will face from doing God's work, God calls us to work, for I am with you. Fourthly, we need to guard against these effects of discouragement. We've seen that being discouraged is just a part of life. It happens to all of us, um, and we've seen how God is with us. He walks with us. He even helps us process our discouragement, and he does so to comfort us and to bolster us. But if we stay there, if we stay in those stagnant waters of discouragement, we can soon become stuck in a bog of apathy and activity and endless comparison to the glory days of the past. I can't help but ask the questions, do you take purposeful measures 
to regularly bolster your soul with the Lord's promises to guard from discouragement? Do you bring your discouragement to the Lord or do you just stew in it? Do you allow him to speak truth to your hearts to pick you back up? Lastly, something that we need to take away and remember, the God of the past is still the God of the present. The Israelites became discouraged. They perhaps compared the past with the present, and we faced the same temptation in our lives. Perhaps when we remember past seasons of our ministries or past uh, eras where we were successful, and now we're in a dry season where we see little success. It is helpful to remember that the same God who accompanied his people out of the wilderness, accompanied his people out of exile, and accompanies us today. The same God who shook the earth at Sinai, brought wealth in from the nations to rebuild the people of Israel and to establish the exiles, and he still shakes the earth and the nations today. The same God who established his people Israel and dwelt in their midst, establishes his church and dwells among us today. It can be really dangerous to view the past, to get stuck um, comparing ourselves to a standard that we're not meeting instead of looking at the past as a springboard to launch us into the future work that God is calling us to do. Because of this great God who has been with us, we can work with courage and confidence because he is still with us. Do we dream of great things that God would do in and through us? Do we take the time to think and reflect on what things the Lord would have us do right now, in the future, in 2023? How will you work in 2023? We have this privilege, this is New Year's Day, we have the new year before us, and we know that God calls us to work. I would encourage you, I'd challenge you, go home, think about this year, pray about this year, ask the Lord, how do you want me to work, to do ministry labor for you this year? It is clearly God's work to bring life, peace, and spiritual prosperity to people in this church age and in the age to come. But he calls us to work alongside him, in his presence, with him. And we must do so with courage and with confidence. As we speak of courage and confidence, we think of this table that is set before us as a picture of what the Lord has done for us, of who we are in Christ. We regularly come together to celebrate this communion table because of what God has done for us and because of the confidence that it offers. Just as we have died with Christ, we will also live with him. Just as we are made new in Christ now, we will be made perfected and new in his presence when he comes again and we look forward to that day. We know that he is with us even now. He has not forsaken us. He dwells in our midst. As we celebrate this table, this, these elements, the juice and the crackers, they represent the, the blood and the body of our Lord Jesus. We proclaim what he has done for us. And as such, this is a, a family matter. This is for Christians. This is 
We who are in Christ do this thing. Scripture warns us and calls us to consider ourselves to see if we are in Christ. And so we ask that if you, if you are not in Christ yet, that you would let these things go by. This is a, a family matter for those who are in Christ. But um, if you are not in Christ, come talk to me. Come talk to Jim or the elders after the service. We'd love to help you find this relationship in Jesus Christ because there is no covenant and no uh, connection between you and the holy God unless there is this blood that has been spilt. With joy, with this confidence, we proclaim the Lord's death on our behalf. We proclaim our eternal life in him and we proclaim our sure hope in his coming. Hebrews six nineteen reads, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone on a for, as a forerunner on our behalf, having become high priest forever. Let us pray before we celebrate. I'll invite the men to come forward and the worship team who are given the music. Let's pray.